welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And I think that we are all in for a treat in this episode for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're talking both National Treasure Films and National Treasure Edge of History. Something for everyone. And number two, we're talking about everyone's favorite characters, the villains. My favorite character is Riley. Okay, well, villains make everything more interesting, Emily. I would like to watch a show where everybody was just happy all the time. That would be so boring. That's basically what Shit's Creek was. Okay, you have a point there. Okay, moving right along. Um, Today we will be talking all about the villains from the National Treasure films and comparing them to our two newest villains in the franchise, one that we didn't know before and one that we did know before but didn't know he was a villain before. It's going to be a wild ride today, but before we get into that, we must start with our customary screams from Parkington Lane. Ah! All right, Emily, what do you got for me this week? So I've actually had this one in the books for a little while. Um, not Riley's book, uh, the notes app on my phone. But um, I went camping and we were all listening to music around the campfire that um, Josh's cousin was controlling. And like some of the song choices were fine and some of them were very weird. And all of a sudden, he puts on this instrumental music, and I'm like, kind of like jamming out, like, oh yeah, this is this is nice. Wonder why he's putting on instrumental music. That's not, you know, his jam. It's the National Treasure theme. No way. Um. So he like straight up put that on, and he had been putting songs on just to kind of like for like a reaction, and then changing it. That song literally stayed on, like, way longer than it needed to, and people just kind of, like, were enjoying it. Um, And then at the very kind of, like, pivotal part of the main theme, when, like, it would be equivalent to, like, essentially, like, when the treasure uh, is revealed in uh, under Parkington Lane, I um, lit a marshmallow on fire and lifted it uh, ceremoniously oh i'm so So. proud of you you really embraced the parkington lane here i did uh what is your scream well my scream is much more straightforward and uh recent i will say um as our listeners know we recently had the pleasure of interviewing prop designer ross mcdonald here on national treasure hunt for a bonus episode if you haven't listened to that yet y'all Go listen, like, right now. Pause this one, go back and listen, and then come back to this, all right? You'll thank me later. Um, But as you'll know from that episode, Ross is the basically co-author of a book about his work called Prop Man. And my scream is that I was so intrigued and inspired by our conversation with him. I was not content to just listen to him describe his work on our show. I actually went that afternoon and bought a copy of Prop Man. It arrived in the mail yesterday and I read it all in one evening. That is intense. It was really cool. I mean, that not not to like promo his book or anything, although sure, like go get it. It's very cool. Um, 
it's full of pictures of his work that you recognize from all sorts of shows and movies and like little descriptions and like info on how he made them. It's very cool. Okay. I mean, I was thinking about checking it out, so you've just convinced me. I'm so glad. And before we move on, we actually have a scream from one of our Patreon subscribers. Uh, this scream comes from Lisa, whom you all actually met like a week or so ago on our latest Superfans episode. And Lisa says that, you know, in her Superfans episode interview, she mentioned the museum that she works in and she gave us the name of the museum in New Zealand but she says she forgot to explain that the name of the museum translates to container of treasures and that her job title in the like local language translates to leader of the protectors so and I quote she says, I am technically a leader of the protectors at the Container of Treasures. Oh my goodness, Lisa, thank you. Yeah, thank you for, for adding <laughs> that color. We love it. You have the coolest job title, and I really hope that like on your LinkedIn, that is your like tagline, is leader of the protectors <laughs> at the Container of Treasures. Yeah, because people in the museum industry will definitely know what that means. I don't know. Sounds pretty pretty descriptive to me. If you also have a scream to share, um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ntuntpodcast. We also have a website, ntuntpodcast.com, where you can find out information about literally like everything else we do, aside from our bathroom schedules. Um, please go ahead and order our book, National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy, at TuckerDSPress.com if you have not already because, you know, great book. Um, and then go ahead on over to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash podcast and feel free to join one of our three character-based tiers uh, so that you can both support us in what we do and also help us bring you even more exclusive content. And speaking of exclusive content, I almost forgot we have to tell you about our collaboration with Clio. Um, if you've been listening this season, you'll know we have a really cool new project. It is a candle inspired by the olfactive history of Independence Hall in 1776. Um, we've been telling you at the beginning of each episode different stages of the collaborative like creation process that we worked through with Clio. And today, I think, is a fun little update. Um, a few weeks back, we were asked by Clio to send them a list of like PR candle recipients. So folks in our professional National Treasure Hunt Network that we wanted to send candles to. And um, when I tell you, it is like the greatest joy of my life to be able to say we are sending a candle to like John Turtletaub and the Wibberleys and Charles Seegers and Orna Vive and the actors that we have interviewed on the show, like truly amazing. Yeah, it like, it, yeah, it's a surreal experience. It's really only made better by the literal email exchange that we had with John Turtletaub about the candle. Should I, should I read parts of it? <laughs> should I do it? Yeah. 
Okay. Okay, so obviously we needed to like reach out to these people to get addresses to have the candle sent to. And we needed to give them some context so that they like know what they're getting so it's not weird. Um, and so we give the little spiel to John and he says, <laughs> I'm sorry, I love this so much. That is the weirdest, creepiest thing ever. What? A candle that smells like an 18th century conference room in Philadelphia is filled with sweaty men and horse manure? <laughs> I lost it. Yes, John, that is what it's going to smell like. Yeah, and so we exchanged a couple more notes, and he goes, okay, then you have to do better than describing it as a candle based on the olfactive history of Independence Hall at the time of the Declaration signing. Wouldn't it be better to try something like a candle that actually recreates the freshness and charm of 18th century America and our country's early days? Either way, I want one. Here's the address. <laughs> Amazing. And I just about died. And then I sent him a sassy response that said, OMG, you're really good at storytelling. You should write movies or something. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was kind of peak for me in the last few months, I would say. Yeah, it was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway, if y'all want to get your hands on one of our candles, you'll be able to do so with the full knowledge that you're burning the same candle as John Turtletop, the Wibberleys, and so many others, you can go over to exploreclio.com. That's explore, K-L-E-I-O.com, and place your order. It has been selling out, so go check it out fast before it sells out again. Okay, that was fun. Shall we proceed to the episode? <laughs> I think we shall. Okay, so... In this villainous episode, we are going to do a couple of things here. First and foremost, we need to get on the same page about who the villains are. Of course, we know we're talking Ian Howe and Mitch Wilkinson from the films. And I think it would be really easy to relegate villains to the obvious Billy Pierce in Edge of History. But we're going to spice things up and also talk a bit about Agent Hendricks slash Salazar. So... We will go through and compare all four of these villains in terms of their motivation, their relationship with history, and their relationship with the protagonists. Um, I think by the end, we'll try to crown a winner in terms of like best villain. We're going to give it a shot. Sound good, Em? Yes. I mean, I already have one in mind, but I feel like this episode is going to change my mind. Real, I cannot wait. Okay, at the end, we'll have to say who we thought we were going to go in picking, and then if that changed. Um, and just as a disclaimer, for the purposes of this episode, when it comes to talking about Agent Hendricks, we're only going to talk about him like as a villain of Edge of History. We're not really going to talk about him too much in terms of his role in the films, or else we'd be here for six hours. Um, so let's jump in with some motivations. Motivation, feeling motivated today. Is that a is that a thing? No. Oh well, it should be. Um. <laughs> so I think one of the things that makes villains interesting in general, like as a character type, is examining their motivation, like regardless of what movie or TV show that we're talking about. Um, for example, Bachelor franchise villains really fun to look at their motivations and national treasure is no exception um we've talked a lot about the motivations of ian and mitch in the past so we can kind of keep that discussion simple um but i am really curious um do you want to try taking a stab at like 
pop top of the head, top of mind, like what, what would you say Ian's motivation is in the first national treasure? Me wants the treasure. Yeah. It's money. It's money slash greed. Right. Um, and what I tried to do for a lot of these points in this episode today is pull out quotes that I think are really indicative. Um, and because there's so such like grand scheme, unimportant quotes, you should be really proud that I just remembered them all off the top of my head and like did not go looking them up. Hey. Yeah. So, um, for example, for Ian, do you remember when um, he meets up with Ben in New York at here at the wall, Wall Street and Broadway? Um, and he goes, where is it? Where's my treasure? Yes. Um, like that to me is the epitome of all I want is the money. Yeah, yeah, money, money's definitely a big factor. <laughs> so I think this contrasts greatly with our National Treasure 2 villain, Mitch Wilkinson. If you had to describe Mitch's motivation in one word, Em, what would you pick? Confusing. <laughs> I, I like the adjective analysis, but we're looking for a noun, I think. I mean, I guess like his granddaddy's name or something like that. And I don't know. As soon as he said that, I was like, I'm out. Okay, fair. Oh, I've been I've been the most critical of Mitch's motivation over time. But as as we know, throughout the three plus years of this podcast, I have experienced the biggest, biggest shift in perspective in real time on this podcast uh, in terms of my opinions, National Treasure 2 related. And Mitch is a great example of that. We'll get to that later. But I would say that Mitch's motivation is like fame or legacy, right? He wants to be remembered. He wants his family name to be remembered. And and the quote that comes to mind for this is uh, that one where he goes, um, a man has only one lifetime, but history can remember you forever. That's a great quote. I would not have expected it to have come from Mitch. It's a like a great quote. Like, I don't think we give that quote enough credit. Um but yeah, I think it really sums up Mitch's motivation. And one of the things that I liked about the villains in the movies, and I'm not sure that this exists quite as much in Edge of History, is that the villains' motivations are extremely straightforward. Not to the point of it being like annoying or obvious, but it is they are very well explained. I mean, you don't have to explain away a money motivation when it comes to a treasure hunt, but like for something like Mitch's motivation, which is much less traditional, I think his words and his actions really support what that motivation is. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's pretty clear. I, I will say. I think that when we get to Billy Pierce and mm. Agent Hendricks and Salazar, you see where I'm going with this, in Edge of History, their motivations become a bit less clear. And I think that is really obvious or evident in the fact that, you know, we get some really cryptic and also, I would say, incriminating quotes regarding the motivations of Cross Us Nostrum. We'll get into that in a second. But you and I, even Emily on the podcast, and even others we've talked to, super fans and, and other folks, have been a little bit confused about how we're supposed to interpret the Cross Us Nostrum motivation. Like, is it as nefarious as it sounds? Because if it is, that is extremely dark. Or is there another way we should be interpreting it? Or is there another way that we 
could be interpreting it. Like these are all questions that I think remain a little bit more open-ended with, with the motivations of our edge of history villains. I think that was very intentional, but it does give a different vibe to the villainy in the show compared to the movies. It's a lot more complex, which I feel like you need to do right. In every iteration, Mm -hmm. you kind of need to kind of step it up like one level, Mm -hmm. right? Like your basic thing in a treasure hunt is going to be like, oh, I want money, right? And then, like, I feel like because of the family stuff in the National Treasure franchise, the second thing you would do for a villain would be to have them be motivated by, like, a family whatever thing. And then for the, I know it's not the movie third iteration, but for, like, the next thing you're doing, you have to be even more complex than that like i feel like you can't just go back to like oh i just want treasure completely agree um but i will say i wish that that motivation in the third iteration as you've called it was explored a little bit more deeply and left a little less open to interpretation i like to think that if edge of history had gotten a second season maybe we would have gotten more of that i actually don't know if they were planning to continue cross us nostrum being like the the umbrella villain or if they were going to go a different direction we actually haven't talked about that yet yeah that that's really interesting in any case i think we also have a dynamic shift in what our perception of the villain's motivation is over time in edge of history so for example with billy um because cross s nostrum is like a slow big reveal we can't know the motivations of cross s nostrum until late and i think that while that's a really exciting twist element it does preclude us from being able to deep dive into the organization's motives right um so in the beginning we're almost tricked into thinking that billy's motivation is money right you know she's the quote-unquote crypto queen she is you know i guess buying these estates of people who collected ancient antiquities and art remember that first scene where she's trying to find the box and she's in like spain or something um and then we see her taking the um the sword like she cares about things of monetary value that is clear um we don't learn until later that because she is a member of this organization her, I guess, principal motivation is, quote unquote, maintaining the status quo. Um, She clearly can't exclusively or even primarily care about the monetary value of a treasure if her entire goal is to go and destroy it. That's true. I think it is interesting. I think I never saw her motivation really as being the treasure. Like, obviously, the maintaining the status quo, the wanting to keep her position, like, in the organization and stuff like that. But to me, it always felt like there was, like, some other reason that, which I mean, like, we we now know there was, right? Mm. But to me, it always felt like there was some other reason. It almost felt kind of Mitch-like to me, and that there was, like, this kind of, like, I don't know, I guess less surface level. I think that there is an element of revenge, 
perhaps in her motivation. Um, and that could be a little bit of a decoy motivation for earlier in the season, especially once we learn that her brother Sebastian was killed in the treasure hunt. You know, she thinks that Raphael killed him and we know it was actually Salazar. Um, so I do get that little bit of like a family tie, but I think it's less about legacy and more about revenge in that case. Oh, 100%. I would definitely say revenge. Now, in terms of the fourth and final villain, ironically, the one that is hardest to pinpoint his motivation, whether it is a like a literal motivation or like, I don't know, whether it's straightforward or not, is Agent Hendricks and Salazar. And I didn't realize this until preparing for this episode. We know nothing at all literally at all about why not only why he would believe in this maintaining the status quo in society thing that's cross us nostrum believes in we don't even know why he like wanted to be salazar or like what why anything yeah that's a great point we didn't we we don't um, and I think, you know, from speaking with Armando, I feel like it became fairly apparent that he the, didn't know either. I'm sorry. <laughs> he didn't know either. The writers did like the Wiverleys didn't necessarily know, but that it was like this cool thing they could do. And they were going to kind of, like, let people backfill it if and as they wanted to, which I'm realizing for us is tricky because we do look to backfill those kinds of things. But, like, I feel like for a normal viewer, just seeing, like, oh, hey, this person turned out to be, you know, part of this organization that's trying to maintain the status quo in society and all that kind of stuff, like they're a little less worried about the exact like temporal shifts of when this happened okay. or even like why he chose to do this. But like we are so, like, we really like really are. I can, they can get away with the temporal thing, I think, but the why, like the central question to answer in a plot or like to explain a key character, especially something as big as this, plot twist like omg good guy was bad guy all along but the funny thing is and I, maybe this is a testament to the writers because again like you said em not everyone i would say most people are not going through this franchise with a fine-tooth comb as much as we are and like i said i didn't notice that we didn't know his reason until i started thinking about this really hard yep no i i mean if one of us was going to notice, it would have been you. Well, but that's the thing, like, they they can get away with it, but I don't know that I like that they can get away with it, you know? Oh, sure. I mean, that. I feel like that's not a national treasure-specific thing. I feel like that happens a lot. Um so I think I've come to like accept it, but yeah, it is, it, it's very frustrating for people like us who clearly want to 
understand these things and like we can come up with our own like story behind it but like i mean armando's story was like super different from the one that i think we had begun to put together when we spoke with him uh so i don't like i don't even know how accurate ours well it would it wouldn't be accurate <laughs> yeah sometimes i wonder if armando's interpretation was accurate because it sounds like he was given so little information to begin with as well so he kind of has to fill in the blanks himself regardless um to wrap up this motivations conversation i do feel like we have to hand it to the franchise creatives the Wibberleys and Charles Seegers, and Orna Vive, and Jim Koof, and everyone who is involved with the story across this entire franchise. No two iterations of this franchise have the same villain motivation up until this point, like, even though the stories are all fundamentally the same thing. I I've got to imagine that was really freaking hard to accomplish. That's really good writing. Right? Um, like, I feel like for all the flack that National Treasure and Edge of History get, like, nobody's really thinking about that. And, like, I'm literally right now thinking about, I'm sorry to bring up a CW superhero television show, but The Flash, like, I didn't even watch all the seasons, but I think they're like, I don't know, seven or nine or something. I read an article recently that, like, five of the villains were also people with super speed. So, like, they did the same thing time and time again. And, like, sure, they all had, like, a slightly different twist on them about, like, why they were doing what they were doing. But, like, I don't know. This is this is good writing like yeah i i completely agree with you um something really positive that we can end this motivation discussion on because it's time for us to move into the second of our three topics today and that is our villain's relationship with history now when i'm talking about relationship with history here i kind of want to take this a little bit broadly like i want to take it literally in terms of how and why they understand history um, and like their educational background or their training, but also do they have a personal connection with history, like through family? So this is going to be kind of a hodgepodge, just all within this, this broader context of history. Sound okay, Em? Sounds great. Okay. Um, let's keep in franchise chronology here and start with Ian once again. Um this was another case of preparing for this episode. I, I feel like I realized a lot of things that were in the back of my head, but never really came to the forefront in our conversations before, which is always impressive when we can make that happen. Um, but one of those things is recognizing just how kind of random blank slate of a white guy Ian Howe is. I mean, first yeah. off, no known family connection to history. And you might think, okay, like most people wouldn't say they have a strong family connection to history, but in this franchise, everyone has a, like a strong family connection to history. Not Ian. No, Ian. Ian's literally just like there. He's almost like, 
the Riley kind of like <laughs> throw in. Oh, like Riley has no family connection. Abigail's connection is because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Riley does have a family connection thanks to oh the prequel books. <laughs> okay, yes. From the movie perspective, Riley has no family connection. Abigail's connection is because like she's an archivist. Well, and and we at least know like the history of her family being from Saxony. Yeah, like... no. Ian just kind of like what's up? She's there. I'm Ian. <laughs> except meaner. <laughs> right, except meaner. Um, in terms of his skills and his training, we also like have no idea like if he went to school, where he went to school, how he got his money, uh, what he studied, if he had like formal educational training beyond like K-12. We don't know any of that. All we know that his skills are quote unquote not limited to writing checks and that he previously quote-unquote arranged operations of questionable legality my favorite thing to say that he says um but like even though we don't know why he's still good at history right like he is able <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's oddly i mean well mm, okay so this might be a point of just comparison between him and his, like, henchmen. Uh-huh. His henchmen, as we know, are not necessarily all depicted as the smartest people in the room. It's a very kind way of putting that. Um, And so compared to them, it looks like he knows about history. <gasps> But he's Googling stuff before no. Google was even a thing. <laughs> Absolutely. But here's the thing. He is able to use history to solve clues. He doesn't have the encyclopedic memory of history that Ben does. But he is able to, like, find what he needs to find and, like, understand the connections between historical references that might not be obvious to the average person. Right? Like... He does it slowly, and he does do it with the assistance of the internet, right? Like, we specifically see him use the internet, I think, twice. Once to discover the existence of the Silence Do Good letters, and again to solve the Pass and Stow clue. But, like, he does do it. We often marvel and have commented on the fact that Ian solves every single one of the clues, except for here at the wall. That's the only one he doesn't actually solve himself if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Which is wild since we have no idea why he's good at this. Maybe it's just like a fun little party trick. Um, that being said, while he at least has an understanding of history, he doesn't seem terribly moved by history itself. Um, I would say if he is at any point in the movie, it's only at the very beginning of the film on the Charlotte. Um, oh yeah he does have a moment yeah mm -hmm. but like, also that might just be like we finally found it it could be but i mean there's also the the moment in in the bowels of the ship when ben you know does his little blood trick and and, and shows the the new riddle from the meerschaum pipe and ben does his little explanation of what the clue interprets to and ian takes a moment and he goes it's clever really 
you know, putting the map on the back of a declaration of a document of that importance would ensure its survival. Like he seems impressed in that moment by, for example, the ingenuity of the founding fathers. Um, but we never see that again. True. Yeah. This exercise, spoiler alert, is making me less satisfied with Ian as a villain. Oh, I think Ian's a typical treasure hunting villain. Like, but I'm we, fine with him. We know nothing about him. We know nothing about barely... We found out we know nothing about Riley and Abigail. We know so much more about Riley and Abigail compared to Ian. So much more, but yeah. still not much. We get enough of them. We don't get enough of Ian. Okay, whatever. Moving on, I would I would summarize Ian as, like, villain from the first film. There's really no, like, con like historical strong connection for the villain, not to mention family connection anything none of our traditional national treasure tropes or themes if you will but if we move into film number two this is where things get really interesting because we and many others have criticized national treasure Two: book of secrets for feeling kind of out of place almost within the franchise like they like they're missing clues they're they're jumping around too much it's lost some of the same effect or vibe but i'm going to argue that what we're about to discuss with villain mitch wilkinson is going to indicate that in the context of the villain, at least, National Treasure 2 is more National Treasure than National Treasure 1 is. <laughs> I see where you're going. You do. Okay. So Mitch in the second film, this is where familial importance really begins to click in the National Treasure franchise for the villain, him, him or herself, themselves. Um, we also get a little bit more of uh, a backstory. We get the same level of backstory and training and education uh, for Mitch that we did from Ben in the first movie. Did you notice that? I didn't. I really don't like Mitch, so I didn't pay attention. <laughs> Well, we immediately know why he should be good at a treasure hunt, because we're told that he studied history at a military university. And we're also told that he's a black market antiquities dealer and a trained mercenary, along with his brothers, Seth and Daniel, his henchmen. Um, and, you know, even though I think we can all get on board with the fact that a black market antiquities dealer is not probably the best person in the world in terms of their chosen career path, uh, I'm gonna bet you gotta have a pretty decent grasp of history to have that slightly nefarious job title. For sure, for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Right? Like, you need you need to be able to have an understanding of, like, historical time periods, where these artifacts are coming from, what they might be valued. Yeah, like, what's valuable, what's not. Totally. Um, so immediately we have some historical baseline prowess here for Mitch that we never even get an ounce of that established for Ian, right? Okay, I don't need the Ian slander. We understand. We don't have it for Ian. Let, let's keep going with Mitch. Fine. Well, his historical connections in his family will really come into play in the film. As we know, um, Mitch is purportedly the descendant of Silas Wilkinson, who in this story worked at Herndon House, that tavern on the night of the Lincoln assassination. Um, the movie, 
like National Treasure 2 movie says that the diary page, the Booth diary page that Wilkinson presents in the beginning of the film, that that page has been passed down through the Wilkinson family over generations. We on the pod know that uh, the National Treasure 2 novel says that Mitch murdered a Freemason to get the page. Regardless, there are, you know, some some potential family connections with this key historical artifact. Um, but Silas and his connection to Herndon House isn't the only historical connection Mitch has in his family. Remember that I, yes, but before you say that, I would like to say that, like, yeah, his ancestor worked at this tavern. Like, to me, I think, so I think my problem with Mitch and the familial connection with him is that I don't buy it enough. Like, I get that he does have a familial connection, but I don't feel moved by it. Like, I don't feel like that's a good enough motivation for everything he's doing. Well, how about the fact that he's actually apparently descended from, like, a real historical person? Remember? Because the movie claims that Mitch is descended from the Confederate General Albert Pike, um, who, in the film, at least, was the one who corresponded with Queen Victoria about the location of Cibola. Now, we have postulated here on National Treasure Hunt that Mitch might have wanted to, like, finish the job his ancestor started, right, by finding Cibola, because Pike didn't find it. But we also know behind this, it gets really complicated from what the movie and the even the book tell us versus, like, what we happen to know from behind-the-scenes conversations with people like the Wiberleys. I do feel like we have to remind folks that the Wiberleys have told us that in their conception of this plot, Pike was a double agent for the North, which would like totally flip on its head our understanding of Mitch being descended from a bad guy. But like, whatevs. There yeah. are strong, you cannot argue that that is not a strong historical connection, whether oh, Pike is a good guy or a bad guy. Strong historical connections. I do not buy it as motivation for his whole thing. Okay, well, we're not talking motivation anymore. That was so, like, 10 minutes ago. I'm just saying, like, it's <laughs> just, I, I, I'm trying to connect it as we go, and that's the problem I have with Mitch. Okay, well, you can pause the Mitch slander, okay? I don't remember the verb you used, but I'm going to go that direction. I will say, as we wrap up the Mitch conversation here, I, I think hopefully we're on the same page at least in agreeing that of all the villains in the whole franchise i think mitch definitively has the most reverence for history um like there's the combination of he admits like his appreciation and his admiration to abigail in the bar like that scene he's like oh you know i i have a passion for civil war history but then there's also like the fact that his motivation is to be remembered by history like there's a clear like reverence and respect for history in this villain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's also just a quick note. I kind of love how he parallels Ben in terms of having a strong historical lineage. Um, I think that makes them really interesting counters to one another, especially in the end when it ends up being like one or the other, you know, who's going to live, who's going to die. Um, I'm going to tell your story. Who? wrong podcast emily (laughs) um okay long story short on mitch he's got the historical training and he's going to use that training 
and his like historical background um, and family connections to get the Wilkinson family name in the history books. And we will learn that he will succeed in doing so. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I have some people related to people. I could try to get my name in the history books. Are we all not just like, in terms of our content creation, even on National Treasure Hunt, we're creating things that we hope will live in perpetuity, are we not? I mean, sure, but everything's going to die eventually. Because climate change. Anyway, um, moving right along to our Edge of History villains. It's so funny to me, just as a quick aside, that we've talked about the likes of Ian and Mitch for literally three and a half years, and yet we can still spend 15, 20 minutes talking about them as if it's brand new content. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it speaks to why we work well together because we have different views on things, which is interesting. And the more we are introduced to new characters in the franchise, the more I'm realizing things about the old ones that we didn't necessarily notice before. True. So speaking of, let's move on to Billy Pierce in terms of the relationship with history. Um I would say that for Billy, there's at least a touch of familial historical relationship here. It tends to be a little bit different, I think, than our traditional concept of history in the National Treasure franchise. But what is history? It really is anything that has happened in the past. Um, we do know a little bit about Billy's family, and we know that her parents died in an IRA attack in London when she was 10 years old. And that's part of its own historical period and a historical series of events in Europe. Um, so it's very different in that we're not talking like Revolutionary War or Civil War era here, but it's, it's I think, becomes an important piece of backstory that like, it's the villain origin story, right? Um, it, yeah, exactly. It's the villain origin story. It's not the, like, I want to make a name for my parents because they died type thing, which I think is it, it's interesting because that, like, like you said, it's a different view on history. But, like, this almost is a more typical, yeah. quote unquote, like, villain origin story. I would say it's super uncreative. <laughs> Like, oh, I really like it, but okay. <laughs> it's so tr it's so typical. How many times do we see in um in different fictional stories where it's like why did the person become bad because they had a, a, a bad childhood? I like, mean, sure. I mean, I was attributing because we were talking about history, I was attributing it more to like probably some of the historical things that, you know, were related to this and stuff but See, you also know me i love watching not watching but i love when i can see a character with like trauma and how they respond to that so you like you should love villains because that's literally tends to be the villain origin story even though it's like probably inappropriate for that to be the villain origin story like as much of the time as it is um, I mean, there's actually a lot of criticism now nowadays in media of how, you know, people with mental illness or trauma in their past are frequently portrayed as villains or bad guys. Like, that's really controversial now, I think, for a good reason. Um, and it's, so it is a little interesting to me that this sort of remains part of a very modern villain's 
story. I was just going to say, I think it can remain because I think they do similar things with the protagonists. So a lot of times the protagonists will be motivated by some kind of Mm -hmm. death of a parent. Like think of any Disney movie. For sure. But I think there's, it's different here because like you said, she's not avenging her parents' death. It's being portrayed as her parents died. Therefore she turned bad. Oh, I mean, I was looking at it as like she, yeah, but it's how she responds to the thing and people respond to things differently. Like that's what make us such a heterogeneous population. For sure. It just really interests me that that's the perspective that you take because I actually am one of the people in the camp that thinks that portrayal is is pretty detrimental and harmful to the stereotype that exists around mental health. Um, but we have gotten really far off topic. Um, I think it's fair to say that despite Billy having having a history, I guess you can say herself, we have no reason to believe that she is like descended from a prominent historical figure or anything like that. So in that way, she's a little bit more Ian-esque mm-hmm. than she is Mitch-esque. Um we do know, however, that she is currently not only making her fortune in crypto, LOL, but that she is also a black market antiquities dealer. So she is a little more Mitch in that respect. We got to have some type of like criminal or like black market antiquities history for these characters. It seems like for National Treasure. I think it's a really easy way of giving them proven abilities in the artifact space. Oh, 100%. Because, I mean, that we buy Ian can do all the bad things he does because he's done probably, like, the questionable things, right, before. Right, but, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think it's interesting they didn't make Ian a black market antiquities dealer, at least not to our knowledge, because that would have immediately explained to us why he's good at history. So that we didn't have to have the conversation we had 20 minutes ago being like, but like, why does he know these things? But thank you to the writers for not including that because it allowed us to have that conversation to provide our listeners with this content. Um, I do think that when it comes to Billy, she is brilliant. She is extremely smart. Um, I think she's the smartest of all of our villains in the whole franchise to this point. Uh, so good for her. But we still don't know anything about her educational pedigree, which is interesting. So that makes her a little bit more Ian-esque. You notice what I'm doing here. Billy is a perfect combination of Ian and Mitch. Yeah. We we know that Billy has studied history, specifically Mesoamerican civilizations and possibly their languages in some context. We don't know whether that's formal education or like informal she Googled stuff, did Duolingo, like, you know. You know, because we see that, you know, she can read the text written on the wall of, remember when they, uh, early on, her and her hench people misinterpret a clue, and there's, like, a trap. It's the trap that Nate falls into, his own little Parkington Lane pit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's reading the ancient civilization's writing on the wall, and she can even distinguish, if you remember, between where the walls have writing in Mayan versus where they're written in Aztec and then the Incan languages, which is like, I don't know. I feel like most experts in those languages, I could be totally wrong about this. I would suspect that most experts in those languages wouldn't be able to do that as quickly and seamlessly as she did. 
Oh, no, but I mean, we do know that in Edge of History, people are given some skill sets <laughs> that don't quite make sense. Absolutely. My point being, she is, whether realistically or not, brilliant. Um, I would say that she also enjoys the details of history. I think she finds history poetic. What is my evidence for this? Um, I would say when she finds and then is like really pleased to now own the sword of Hernan Cortez and she wants to be its owner when she finds Montezuma's treasure since Cortez wasn't able to find it himself, right? Um, I think that's a good example of her like being moved by history, a little bit more Mitch-esque. Uh, but this particular point, I will admit, makes it particularly difficult to understand how and why she's comfortable destroying history, artifacts, and cultural treasures. Maybe then it plays into, like, the whole, I don't know, I don't, she's not being blackmailed. You know, she's obviously, like, doing it on her own accord. But, like, you know, we talked about, like, the the boardroom, right, of those, like, white They're dudes. They're paying her. They are paying her, but, like... Maybe she's doing it for, maybe she's Ian. Maybe she's doing it for the money. Like, it's weird. I get, yeah, it's super odd. And, like, the only thing I can think of is that, like, she wants to be in charge so that she can be the one to find the treasures and then, like, keep it, like, keep pieces of it for herself, mm. but, like, not expose all of it to the world so it would be like if like ben and riley and abigail and whatnot like found the templar treasure but then just like didn't tell anyone which <laughs> obviously was not the plot was not set up for that <laughs> right well i think the point of this piece of the conversation or the realization i have come through through this discussion is and again something i did not realize watching edge of history Billy is like a perfect combination of Ian and Mitch. She has almost like 50-50 qualities of each of them. And then additional like smarts to boot. <laughs> Very true. Okay, so what about Hendrix slash Salazar, I guess? Yeah, I don't know what to call him, like ever. Um, I would say... Again, very interestingly, and self-consistently with our motivations conversation a little while ago, we know the literal least about Hendrix slash Salazar of all of our villains, despite the fact that we have also literally spent the most time with him. He is the only character, the only, actually, pause, and let me think about this for a second. He is literally... The only character that has been in, like, every segment of this franchise. He was in the first movie. He was in the second movie. And not only was he in the show, he was in every or nearly every episode of the show. Yeah, it wasn't like a Sadowski where he kind of, like, pieced out. Right, or, or Riley, right? Like, we've literally spent the most time with Hendrix of any National Treasure character. Let that sink in for a minute. That literally just, like, came to me right now. Well, we spent the most time with him in the sense that he's been in the most things. But I'd say we definitely haven't actually spent the most time with him on screen. 
Well, of course, but because we've had theoretically so much time to learn about him, it becomes particularly poignant that we know nothing about him. Um, we don't know anything about his family. We don't know anything about his upbringing. We don't know anything about his education. We just know that he has experience as an FBI agent, which we're now meant to believe happened after he became Salazar. We have literally no idea why he believes in the ideals of Crosses Nostrum. And even if we were being generous and saying that Billy's life experiences as a child turned her villainous, like what we were talking about before, we have absolutely no context for why Hendrix became villainous. He is perhaps the least historically relevant and reverent of the entire villain group. Maybe that lack of historical like literacy and like relevancy though adds to like like pairs well with his motivation, right? Like if his motivation was just kind of like cross us nostrum, like destroy the stuff, like he you know, I'm kind of thinking like maybe he's like one of those people that's like so enmeshed in this like this like one side of things that like he believes that's true but actually has no knowledge of like the actual history Mm -hmm. behind any of the things and like because he believes so strongly in that it's kind of like he's become like a like a religious like zealot for the cause yeah i i think you're probably exactly right it would just be really helpful to know what got him to that point like what was why why cross us nostrum i will keep i guess that's my takeaway from this episode and we still have a whole other section left um but i will end the hendrix conversation uh with this i i do think uh like i said least historically relevant and reverent on the reverent point i did want to point out that like while someone like Ian didn't really seem to care about history very much at all from like a reverence standpoint, Ian still wasn't trying to destroy things most of the time. Um, Most of the time. Right. Like I I do know that we're now supposed to believe he had ties to cross as Nostrum. I kind of don't buy that. I think if I'm remembering my notes, we'll get back to that a little later. Um, I kind of don't buy it because he wants to profit off of it. Like he wants the monetary value. Hendrix doesn't show appreciation or admiration at any point, And he is actively spearheading the effort to destroy all of the treasures. So to sum up this section, I'm going to say that what I think is interesting is kind of ranking the villains in terms of their historical reverence, because we know that this entire franchise is kind of based on historical reverence and i would say that hendrix is the least reverent followed by ian followed by billy followed by mitch at the most historically reverent side would you agree that's fair okay let's go into our last section it's so funny um i was a little worried that we wouldn't have enough content for this episode but this conversation has gotten so rich that we're good to go 
yes, we are definitely good to go. So let's without without doing a disservice to this part, let's let's, you know, pick up the pace a little bit for the people so we can get to the well, we want to get to our conclusions about I I'm I, you can see I'm trying to bring all these points together. I, I am waiting for that moment. Okay. And I, I now think I know who my top villain is. And I'm really excited to get to see who yours is. I think I know who yours is now, too, and I didn't think you were going to go there. I wonder if I'm right. Anyway, okay, okay, okay. Third and final section today. The relationship between the villain and the protagonists. okay? Um, once again, I think we can be very brief with Ian and Mitch because we've talked about this before, right? For the benefit of our listeners, though, to kind of put the pieces together, Ian, we know that he, at least at one point, was actively friends with Ben, but he has a fairly complicated relationship with Ben because even though they're friends, he is also Ben's financier. And, you know, as they say, don't go into business with your friends, which obviously Emily and I uh, haven't heeded that warning ourselves. Anyway, um, I do wonder how many other like Charlotte pursuits, if any, Ian financed before the Arctic expedition. That's a whole other conversation, but like that would tell us, I think, even more how long Ben and Ian have been affiliated with each other. The longer that affiliation, the more intriguing it becomes when they end up being like hero villain. Yeah, when he's just like, mm, I'm gonna blow you up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. five I mean, minutes into the film and and we talk often about how interesting like the friends turned enemies trope is for national treasure specifically um because number one this transition happens so early in the film it's like the catalyzing moment but also i think the fact that they know each other so well adds a lot to the hero villain dynamic right like ian is constantly calling ben on lying to him because since he knows him so well he knows what like ian knows when ben is lying it's so much harder for ben to shake off the villain because of this and i think that's an underrated element of the hero villain dynamic in the first film oh that's a great point okay i think that's all i have to say about ian do you have anything on this one no i i really like that last point <laughs> okay um moving on to mitch mitch doesn't know ben um not personally anyway but we're meant to believe that mitch has likely been following ben's like treasure hunt work from afar for a while right because mitch specifically targeted ben um or i guess more accurately ben's ancestors to get ben to join the hunt for cibola like mitch knows enough about ben to know what will motivate ben to get him to join the hunt and like have this pursuit happen yeah, for sure. Um, I will also say that Mitch feels more ruthless than Ian does. Um, and I do attribute some of this to the fact that Ben and Mitch are relative strangers, right? It would make, um, it would make a, like, you can get away with a villain doing anything. That's why they're a villain, right? Like, they can do erratic things and we won't really question it too much. But I think, you know, I've mentioned before on the show, Ian's momentarily stunned reaction when Ben has quote unquote died in the ship explosion. It's like a half a second of him being like, oh my gosh. And then he moves on because he's a villain. But like, you will never see something like that with Mitch because Mitch has no reason to care about Ben at all. Yeah. I mean, he was literally 
like ready to have him die mm-hmm. in Cibolo. And that's one of the re- that's another reason why the Mitch turn on the dime moment when Cibola is flooding is so hard to get on board with because we've seen Mitch be so ruthless the whole time. We've seen him have no care, no reverence for Ben and his physical or his mental or emotional well-being. And so all of a sudden when he does, like it would make so much more sense to me if Ian had made a decision like Mitch did in some respects. Until you consider the fact that Mitch's motivation is being remembered by history, he can be remembered even if he has died. Some might argue that if he's died tragically in this way, he was more likely to be remembered by history. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, if, well, I guess there was no way he and Ben were both getting out. But even if they had both gotten out, like, I don't know that Mitch's name really would have been a big part of the history books. Yeah, so um, I'll admit I had never thought of that whole like explanation for Mitch's change of heart until right now and now yeah I think we had the realization I saw it in our eyes at the same moment (laughs) it's like oh wait we've been complaining about this moment for three and a half years huh I'm gonna have to sit with that now when we get off this recording because I does that I have to ask myself if that explains my like last problem with Mitch as a character and it might anyway Moving right along, let's talk Billy and then Agent Hendricks. So Billy definitely doesn't know Jess Valenzuela. Um, And we also know that not only does Billy not know Jess, like unlike Mitch, Jess was never on Billy's radar. And I think we can say this with confidence because there's that brief moment in episode one when Billy is watching the surveillance footage of Jess leaving Sadusky's home for the first time. And she says like, and who are you? And yes, that is exactly what she says because I was like, this is such a missed opportunity for her to say, and who might you be? Which is from national treasure. Um, but anyway, sentiment is the same. She did not know Jess. Yeah. A hundred percent didn't know Jess. And I feel like almost would have preferred to not have. What do you mean? Like, I feel like for the first half of the season, it just yeah. definitely just like getting in her way. Like she she has to contend with her mm-hmm. all of a sudden. So I think like it almost would have been easier for her in some respects if she just like I, it would have taken her a lot longer to get where she was going. But I think it would have been easier for her if like Jess was just like not. Jess had never been issued the challenge by her awful boss at Almighty Storage to uh, crack the EM Phasma clue. Really, this whole show is because of the awful boss. Yes, he was an awful boss, but also, as we've talked about before, she she was not performing her job. She might have been an awful employee as well. Absolutely. Um, But interestingly, here's a new dynamic that I don't think we really, I don't know, it didn't register for me before as being so new to this franchise, but like as a really natural progression. Billy didn't know Jess, but Billy did know Jess's dad. Right? Um, You know, Billy also purports that she knew Jess's mom, but that ended up being fake. What isn't fake is that Billy and Raphael knew each other 
Um, we know that Billy thinks Raphael killed Sebastian, her brother. Um, I really wish this was something that we had gotten to explore more, specifically the dynamic between Billy and Raphael. How did they know each other in that, like, we know Raphael was, like, kind of spying within Cross S. Nostrum um, because he was working with Billy and Sebastian at some point. But I think we're also meant to believe from Sadusky's monologue on his recording in 2001 from the beginning of episode one. You know, he said we the Freemasons learned um, from a spy within, like, basically Cross S. Nostrum's group that, like, the box was found. Um, I think we're meant to believe that spy was Raphael. Oh, 100%. So I want to know more about that. Like, how did Raphael, I know we're getting a little off topic, but for the record, how did Raphael become like a spy within Cross as Nostrum? Was that by his own doing? And if it wasn't by his own doing, like, was he working with the Freemasons? Mm-hmm. And, and, even if he did it by his own doing, like how did he get in touch with the Freemasons for the for him to have told the Freemasons that the box was found? Like there's so much here. I wish we had explored. And a good piece of that is the Raphael Billy dynamic, which I think could have added a lot more um to our hero villain vibe in Edge of History. Yeah. What I will say is I think it's I've not considered this before, but it's really interesting to think about how because Billy knew Jess's dad. Once Jess came into the picture, did Billy's motivations change? Right? Like, Mm. because now she's like, well, here's my opportunity to, I mean, she wasn't like directly trying to take Jess out. She wasn't not, but you know, <laughs> she wasn't like, you know, squaring her up with like a knife or anything. But did it become one of those things where it was kind of like, you know, where we thought her motivation was like just the cross us nostrum thing. Now it's more revenge. Now it's more revenge. And maybe that's what I was like subconsciously thinking about from the top i don't know fascinating yeah another reason a second season would have been real nice disney um lastly let's talk of course agent hendrix slash salazar again like billy he did not know jess but he did know Raphael. recall that we learn Hendrix is Salazar through the eyes of Raphael because Raphael recognizes him. And I've often said, I think this is one of, if not the best moment on the show. Um, So craftily done. Like it gave me chills. So Raphael knew him too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Again, something that could have been explored so much more. Um, Anyway, I guess to wrap up this shorter section on the villain's relationships with the protagonists. I kind of wanted to think about does having a familiar connection with the protagonist add something to the plot in this franchise? And I think probably yes, especially at least in my opinion, because the relationship between the Cross Us Nostrum villains and Jess's family might be one of the more interesting elements of the entire show. 
as evidenced by the fact that I really feel like we missed out on learning more about that dynamic. Um, yeah, and the double agent thing is always a good angle. I mean, we that's part of the reason why, like, Hendrix is even, like, being discussed, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, in this episode is, be like, I mean, like, yeah, he was a villain, but, like, like you like we've been pointing out we know nothing about him we don't like we don't know his motivations we don't know any of his history like we don't know any of this stuff but like people find him appealing because Mm -hmm. he's that person that was like doing this subversive thing behind the scenes and like knowing that Raphael was doing that I think like I don't know is interesting and brings some more connections into things completely agree um which is also when you expand what a familiar connection is like we talk so much on about how family is the the common theme throughout this franchise if you expand their definition of family these sort of friendship and other sort of working relationships um, are an extension of that and become, I think, a really important dynamic to consider for the villain. We can take all of these conversations that we have and ask ourselves, what should this mean for National Treasure 3, for example? And I would say having some relationship between Ben and the villain, whether that makes it Ian again or what, is a great element. I would say we're so impressed by how all the villains have different motives. Good luck doing that for a fourth time now, but like, I think you should try. Um or even have them have a relationship with Abigail or Riley. Yeah, that like could be Like, it doesn't have to be Ben. That's totally true. That's a really good point. Um, okay. Well, Emily, we've gotten to the part of this episode that you and I, I think, have both been looking forward to. It is our reflection. After this conversation, can we say, like, who the best villain is or who the worst villain is? Maybe which villain is, like, the most believable which villain would we want to see again if they were all alive? Like, give me your thoughts and then I'll give you mine. I mean, just for nostalgia's sake, I would like to see Ian again. Just because he was there in the first one. Um, that being said, I did go into this episode and Ian was my favorite. Um, I think with Hendrix being like a close second, because of the whole like subversive thing, which I think is, you know, people write whole shows about that. That's like, that's a whole thing. Um, However, after kind of like doing this more in-depth analysis, I'd have to say that like, I think both for what we do and don't know about them, I think Billy would have to be my favorite. Um, I don't necessarily think that means she's coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the whole, so I think the thing that gets me with like Mitch is like, it's this weird mixture of like revenge slash like revenge ish for his family slash wanting to get his name into the history books and I feel like for Billy, I buy the revenge component like way more than I ever bought it 
with Mitch because he had that additional thing. But to Mitch get his... isn't about revenge. Like he's yeah, but not. that's the thing is like it it always seems like he is. And I don't God. know how to explain it. It just it's a weird thing. But even even if we take the revenge component out and we just look at like I don't know. I have never, and I feel like we've had this conversation before. I have never been like the, oh yes, getting your name into the history books is like the ideal motivation for me personally. Like, right, because you don't relate not, to it. And exactly. I don't think you. I don't think you have to relate to it. Like, do you relate to revenge? <laughs> I don't relate to revenge, but I relate to the. I relate more to the feelings that stem from that than, like, the innate desire to, like, write my name in history. I'd rather, like, I'd rather be known just, you know, in, like, a small circle of people, but I don't need my name in a history book. But, like, I have wanted revenge on people. I'm not going to do anything about it. <laughs> but, like, I, I buy that. I don't know. What, what bothers me about Billy after this exercise is I feel like she has a bu- she's a bunch of dangling threads that don't get tied together. I feel like we get bits and pieces of who she is, but they don't connect. Like, I don't see how the story that we got from her, from her childhood, exactly relates to her being part of Crosses Nostrum. And well, it's great to know a little bit about her, but it doesn't give us much in terms of an explanation. And then, yes, she wants revenge on Raphael, um, but, you know, she admires history. So I cannot, in, for the life of me, comprehend why she would be cool with Cross S. Nostrum destroying treasures and history, even if she believes in the status quo, or let's call it what, what how we interpret it here, like the white supremacy argument. Um, even if she believes in that, it, it, I don't know how you can reconcile the admiration for history with the desire to destroy the history. That's what bothers me about her. I think we do get a lot of elements of her. They just don't connect for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it's, yeah, it's super cool because I think it's, we just have very different, like what we're looking for is very different. I think those open-ended things to me are like, cool and interesting and that i can fill in my own things mm. and to, to me that. they're just a, to me they're just a contradiction right <laughs> and like i i like that i can kind of build her story up a little bit um but also like yeah i don't know i i also really don't like mitch so like he was never gonna win for me yeah do you want to hear my analysis is it is Mitch your favorite? Well, I'm, I'm I, have, I have um I have a re- I have like analysis of all of them that kind of leads to this. So so yeah, I walked in to this episode thinking Billy was my favorite. I think I've said that on a couple episodes, at least in the last season. Um, I thought she was just like so cool. Like I don't agree with her, but I think as like an intelligent, strong, powerful woman, I thought she was super cool. Um, and I still think that. She's a a cool depiction of a female villain who has brains, right? Um, But this exercise has, to me, she's more Swiss cheese to me and got a lot of holes in her. 
I think that the reason that my opinion has changed, I don't think I have a favorite villain, but I do like complete characters. And I do believe that Mitch is by far the most complete villain. He has a complete backstory that we are aware of. And even if we don't agree with his motivation, we understand it. Like we get enough information about him that we understand why he's doing what he's doing. Um, that being said, let's let's give some superlatives here. Billy, by far the smartest villain. I respect her knowledge, and I do like that she's a complex slash like layered character. For example, I know you didn't like this, but like the fact that she was torn up over Casey and Nate's deaths, I really liked that. It added like layers to the onion. Um, I still wonder if she feels any internal conflict over destroying the treasure since we know she cares about history. I wish we knew her where her historical prowess came from. These are some of the gaps that I would love to have had filled in. And I think if they were filled in in a way that made sense, she would probably be to me the quote unquote, my favorite villain. Um, I do think in a weird way that Billy is like a combination of Ian and Mitch as previously discussed, but she might skew a little bit more towards Ian, which might also relate to why you like her because you like Ian. yeah. Yeah. So like to me, her distress over Casey and Nate parallels Ian's response to Shaw's death. Right. Um, Ian is also smart and we have no idea why, like I really hadn't noticed the similarities between Mm. them before. And then finally, Hendrix is the least complete villain, which is so disappointing to me because we, in theory, need the most information about his villainy to make it make sense. Since we knew him on the scale of, like, villain neutral protagonist, he was definitely on the neutral to protagonist end of that spectrum before. Um, Now, that being said, us knowing quote-unquote so much about him before from the films just like knowing that he existed and like his whole vibe that could also be the reason why the creators like didn't or couldn't give us the backstory we needed because it would be too easy to mess up our existing understanding of the films and not just like a cute nod like oh what if ian was like cross his nose from the whole time but like something that actually messed something up with the films if they like went into too much detail about hendrix um, that could be something we could follow up with the Wibberleys about. Like, why the heck is Hendrix the way he is? <laughs> you know what you just made me realize? What's that? I'm wondering if this was a combination of two things. One, obviously, billing-wise and, like, advertisement-wise. Like, the fact that Catherine Zeta-Jones was in it was, like, a really big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And she's not gonna sign on for something like this for like a super quick thing so like you do have to make her a bit kind of like almost like a bigger deal Mm -hmm. right than hendrix but so that's like a plot perspective slash like monetary i guess thing second thing they left and i think i liked this they left that hendrix salazar reveal until like very close to the end Mm -hmm. of the show and so for them to because everything was building up to that point by the time we got that reveal 
there was like so much other stuff happening right like we Mm -hmm. were like there were life or death situations like everything was going on we had to wrap all that up and so i feel like they almost couldn't maybe they felt like they couldn't take the time to give us all of that explanation for hendrix then but also didn't want to do that earlier on because they wanted to save the reveal Reveal. for later and didn't want to tip people off too much so i'm wondering if like in a second season maybe that might have been something where they could have like backtracked a little i like that they would have had that option i find it very hard to believe that if they got the second season they would have revisited hendrix because hendrix is dead like it would be almost forced to to pull him to pull that explanation back in uh, True, but that's yeah, a, maybe they were just gonna leave it open-ended but i, I think they were i do want to ask the way really is now though anyway uh so my summation is while i don't feel like comfortable saying i have a favorite villain i think mitch is the most complete and i do really appreciate that cool Gotta love us for continuing to have differing opinions. That's the what makes this interesting. <laughs> exact opposite opinions at all times. But I will say, um, this ended up being a really fun episode to record. Um, just another example of what could be super basic, leading to some what I think are really interesting revelations. I yeah. think if they're interesting to us, who like in theory have thought about this way harder than anyone ever should then I think it'll be interesting to our listeners. So let us know if you agree. Yeah, please let us know if you agree. And please let us know, like, your thoughts on these villains. And Who's your favorite villain? Yeah, like, maybe, Aubrey, you can put up a poll after the episode's been out for, like, a week or something. Um, and we can kind of, like, see. But then also, though, we need, like, explanations. Like, we, we yeah. can't just have, like... Like, we can do a vote, but then, like, we need people to comment on, like, why. Because, like, you know, you can't just be like, oh, Ian! Because then it's like, but why Ian? For me, like, I like Sean Bean as, because I knew him from, not personally, I knew him as an actor from before. So, like, sure. But anyway... You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. Um, you can also check out our website, ntunpodcast.com, for all of the other information about us. And you can go ahead and check us out on Patreon, where I'm sure we'll be having more of these discussions, uh, at patreon.com slash NT Hunt Podcast. And if you thought this was a fun episode, just wait for our next one. It is probably our favorite episode to do on the pod and we're so excited to have the opportunity to do it again thanks to edge of history we are putting our science skills to the test and examining the science of national treasure edge of history and i don't know em should they expect some national treasure hunt labs on social media in the future uh 100 percent which is everyone's favorite. So until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt. (laughs) 